Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest news from the front lines as Ukraine's counteroffensive intensifies. We discuss the Russian fortifications that Kyiv's troops are aiming to break through. And we report on suspected partisan warfare as more railway lines in occupied Ukraine are blown up. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday. The 12th of June, one year and 108 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, and Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi David. Hi everybody. So quite a lot to get through today. We'll take it um, slow, but I'll start with Today's British Defence Intelligence update, the reason being that it's a it's a neat summation, which we'll then we'll then dig into. But today's MOD update says in some areas, Ukrainian forces have likely made good progress and penetrated the first line of Russian defences. In others, Ukrainian progress has been slower. Russian performance has been mixed. Some units are likely conducting credible manoeuvre defence operations, while others have pulled back in some disorder amid increased reports of Russian casualties as they withdraw through their own minefields. Okay, so that's that's not a bad summation of what's happening, but let's dig into some of the detail, but do hold that in the back of your mind. And please remember that this is based on very mixed messaging, virtually nothing coming out from Ukraine. We're relying a lot on on um, trying to verify other reports that we're seeing, a lot from some Russian telegram channels, which have to come, as I said before, with a health warning. So bear with us. We're doing the best we can in the in the fog of war. Oh, and by, I should say, we're not we don't give anything away here. Well, we don't get anything really for, on the on the QT from spies and all the rest of it. So we are not giving anything away here when we talk about locations and unit designations that isn't freely available on social media. We might put it together, and there's a certain amount of assessment in that. But we we check ourselves, and we do not give anything away that would be helpful to um, to Russian forces. Okay, so last week I was saying the, the counteroffensive from Ukraine seems to be very broadly on three axes. So in the east of the country, heading east, kind of through Bakhmut and that area, through the Donbass, with an axis, like say, due, due east. Then further further down around the, around the corner, if you like, heading southeast, there's another axis there, based around the town of uh, Velika Novosilka. And then another one a bit further to the west, heading south 
from Zaporizhia Oblast are heading south down that way. So those are the, broadly the three axes that we are going to be talking about until there's a, a, a drama, dramatic change in the in the offensive. But in the east, there has been fighting. So if we take Bakhmut, sorry, take Bakhmut as a sort of central pin in our, in our map. Let's take Bakhmut. So about 40 k's northeast of Bakhmut, there's um, Bilorovka, town of Bilorovka, just west of Severodonetsk. This is in Luhansk region. There is fighting there. I highlight that just to, just to indicate that there is fighting up and down the line, not just in the few areas that we're able to highlight. But there is, there is a lot of fighting there as well. But back to Bakhmut. The Ukrainian Eastern Group of Forces spokesperson, Colonel Sergei Cherovati, said that Ukrainian forces have advanced up to 1,400 metres on the Bakhmut front. Now, this has been backed up by information that we are seeing from Russian middle, the military blogging community. They're saying Ukraine has advanced to the northwest and the northeast of Bakhmut. Interesting, that's the first time we've heard of Ukraine advancing on the northeast of Bakhmut for a while. Now, these are small gains, 1,400 metres, not, not massive in a, in a huge country. But if you think about it, compared to the gains Russia has made over recent months in Bakhmut, it, it, is, it is impressive, shows the level of fighting there. I mean, imagine if in the last few weeks we've been, when we were talking about Bakhmut and Wagner and all that kind of stuff, if we'd said Russia has advanced 1,400 metres over the, over the weekend, the Moscow PR machine would have exploded in an orgy of self-congratulation and there'd be a lot of folks saying that Ukrainian forces were finished, blah, blah, blah. So put that in context there. Why are they fighting in Bakhmut? So we're suggesting, and Mike Martin put this, put this idea out as well last, last week, I mean, it is symbolic for Russia. They've been fighting. They've lost, whatever it was, 20,000 men since Christmas fighting for Bakhmut. It is symbolic. It was heralded as a massive victory when um, when they took the city a couple of weeks ago. So any reversal there will have a, a major political effect in Moscow. And also, we know that Bakhmut is an area where you have Wagner. You have the Chechens fighting. You've got the, the local militia, the People's Republic. You've also got regular Russian MOD. And there's huge fault lines between all these different units. They're not good at coordination. They don't liaise well with each other. So that is an area of, of military activity. If you try and get into those fault lines, it, you can have a have a great effect. That's a sort of military truism. So it's unsurprising that Ukraine has decided to, to go hard back around the area of Bakhmut. Let's move further around to the south. That's southeastern access through Velika uh, Novosilka. So we're now about 60 k southwest of Donetsk City. So there, that seems to be the area Ukraine's had the most success over the weekend. Ukrainian forces have advanced about 10 k's from where we think their start line was, uh, 10 k's south. The main defensive line, the reports that they've got through the first defensive line of Russian obstacles, but the, the, the main defended line, we think, is about another five, six, seven-ish k's south of where they seem to be now. Ukrainian forces have taken a number of villages there, and this was confirmed by Hanna Malia, that's Ukraine's deputy defence minister. She also she thanked the 35th Separate Brigade of Marines for their action there. Like I said, we're not giving away, away any OPSEC. That's already out there in social media. That seems to be the most successful front at the moment. Further round, so travel further west on our, on our sort of imaginary map, and you come to the, uh, the, the, the axis that's going due south, aiming towards Melitopol, the closest axis to the Black Sea, the Sea of Azov, and um, sort of severing that land bridge. Now, on Friday, just after we did the, the pod, there was a lot of footage said to be from the, the, the village of Malatokmachka. This is about 3k south of Orhiv. And this was footage showing damaged 
an abandoned Ukrainian Leopard 2A6 tanks and Bradley, US Bradley infantry fighting vehicles. Now, it looked like they'd been hit by mines. It, it, and we, so like I said, this happened after we'd been speaking, but it, it caused a big flurry over the weekend. As we said, you know, this is going to happen. We should not be shocked by it. This is high-intensity warfare after all. We are used in the in the West. We're used to seeing the effects of counterinsurgencies in the last 20-odd odd years. And maybe we've become more accustomed to that. We're not used to seeing tanks and big infantry vehicles getting uh, getting hit and having tracks blown off and, and so on and so forth. So you know, we, we need to get used to it, but we shouldn't be shocked by it. However, what I would say is that already there have been a number of Russian channels recycling these photos or using different parts of the same images to suggest more such incidents have taken place. Now, there undoubtedly will be in the future, but we should wait to see them. I mean, you know, have no doubt as and when those happen, Russian channels will be flooding social media with similar images. So we should be careful not to allow ourselves to become duped by recycled images but what I would say about that action, it looks as if the Ukrainian advance trying to clear through a, a minefield got itself in, in a right old tangle. Either something broke down or had a track blown off, tried to tried to recover that vehicle. But a whole load of vehicles bunched up and seemingly there were more mine strikes and it all just got into a right old, right old mess. But the blasts seem to have come from below. They've not come from above. There's no obvious holes in the in the side or the turrets of the tanks or the infantry fighting vehicles. So I'm suggesting they weren't hit by anti-tank guided missiles or or helicopter-borne missiles. There's been a lot of subsequent footage or more footage over the weekend. Some footage from the... There was actually some footage that was allegedly from the thermal camera on a Russian Ka-52 attack helicopter. That's showing hits and very dramatic overhead strikes. But they seem to be after the main event and a, a static vehicle that hasn't got a crew in it using the gun anymore and hasn't got any any tracks. I think even I'd be able to hit that given a given a fair wind. What we've not seen though in that incident, there were no turrets tossed like we've seen throughout this war from the kind of from the Russian side. There was no mass destruction indicating that, that you know, a catastrophic incident inside the vehicle. So that shows that these vehicles can take hits. I'm just going to pause briefly and talk about the difference between an M-kill and a K-kill. We talk about an M-kill, which is mobility kill. So a vehicle that, let's say, goes over a mine, had it, has its tracks blown off. It, it can't move very far then. Needs to be needs to be recovered, dragged out and what have you. But the gun will probably still work. The optics will still work. The radios will still work. And the crew are probably still alive. We then talk about a K-kill, which is a... I don't, I don't think the kill stands... The K stands for anything other than kill. It's when a vehicle has been utterly destroyed... And, and it's just it's just scrap metal and the crew are probably dead. So we need to differentiate between what is an M-kill that can probably be recovered and repaired and eventually go back in the line, or a K-kill. And the point to make there is that, as with this footage, we didn't see any dead bodies. So that suggests the crew compartments were not compromised and the soldiers were able to dismount their you know, their broken vehicles, cross to other, other vehicles and, and get the hell out of there. This highlights the importance of industrial resilience in, in major warfare, who can keep going for, for the longest, and the need for the West to keep sending such equipment. So it looks like a load of vehicles got knocked out, M kills, and then the crews got out, recovered, and and will you know, hopefully fight fight another day. And then later on, strikes were called in to put the you know, vehicles on fire and, 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 and what have you. So just be careful with the images that you do see. 
Now, Sergei Shoigu, the Russian defence minister, he was shown over the weekend on state television awarding the uh, Hero of Russia gold star to soldiers who reportedly had destroyed those tanks. I mean, I'm just amazed by that. The uh, one action, this, this, as I say, this is going to happen again. And yet the first action when a when a Western tank is is knocked out and a, an American infantry vehicle and suddenly it's there's you know medals all round lads i mean it just speaks of i think that speaks of a desperation to highlight this for propaganda purposes but then obviously i'm a, a biased western lib now just whilst we're talking about sergey shoigu again today's mod british mod assessment says that over the last week uh, shoigu has been trying to build a higher public profile likely with the aim of presenting himself as being totally in control of the strategic issues, especially in light of the of the counteroffensive, but they also note that he's made two demonstrably false comments over the last week regarding Russia's defensive operations and Ukrainian losses. British defence intelligence says he's almost certainly seriously exaggerated claims about Ukrainian losses, and he's acutely aware of the need to maintain a positive image in the face of increasingly unmasked criticism from some fellow Russians. That's their words. So, Shoigu's having a bigger public public profile. Over the weekend, he signs an order that suggests that, that says, orders all volunteer detachments, their words, so this is the private military companies like Wagner and so on and so forth, all volunteer detachments must officially sign a contract with Russian MOD and come under its control by the 1st of July. So this is all part of the power play, as we've been talking about for, for weeks now, months if and even, power play between Shoigu and the establishment and Prigozhin and Wagner and that, and that side of it. Now, unsurprisingly, Yevgeny Prigozhin's come out the blocks quickly and he said that Wagner's not going to sign any contracts with the uh, Russian MOD. And he said Wagner PMC has deep expertise and is a highly efficient structure. Unfortunately, most military units do not have such efficiency, and that is precisely because of Shoigu's inability to properly manage the military formations. So straight away, you've got this fault line prized apart again, this this move by Shoigu, I think, to try and shore up the power of Russian MOD, and quick as a flash, Wagner would come out and say, not, not, not for us, and so on and so forth. So there are there are tensions there. So that was it for the kind of tactical updates. Lots of other bits and pieces to talk through in a moment, but I better better let David have a word. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for talking us through all those updates. There's a lot of information coming out. And I think, um, we'd, yes, as you said, we're doing our best just to make sure that we only stick to the stuff that we can absolutely verify. So thank you, Dom. As you said, there's other updates, but I'll come back to you, give you a, a bit of a break. That was that was rather that was a rather ma- mammoth uh, update length from you there. Uh, Roland Oliphant, you've been um, looking at all sorts over the past few days. Can you talk us through some of the stories that, that you've been writing up? I don't know what I've been writing over the past few days. It's all been such a blur. I mean, I think, I think Dom's covered the... Um, the, the counteroffensive pretty well. I remember sitting here. Let, let me actually ask Dom since he's here. Um, we were sitting here literally a week ago last Monday when the first pushes started at Velikano Vasilka, and you were saying, ah, "I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced." Are you happy to say now this is the big push? Yeah, I think so. I think um, yeah, there was a lot of thank you, a lot of toing and froing about. Is this the counteroffensive? Is it just uh, recce in force? Is it probing attacks? I mean, all of these things could be could be true, but President Zelensky said over the weekend that that it's that it's on. I think we just, you know, it serves no purpose anymore to say, "Ooh, is this it?" Or is it all a big, all a big feint? I mean, it might be wrecking in force on a very large scale, looking for where 
the Russian reserves are going to be deployed. But I don't think I don't think we should beat ourselves up anymore about right. has the offensive started. Clearly, something's happening. Right. So there you have it. Even 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 the ultra skeptic Tom himself is on board. It is it is the big push, and that became apparent over over the course of the week and the um, and the and the weekend. And and as Dom said, I mean, an awful lot of the reporting and writing has been. Uh, it's been deeply frustrating, actually, because we basically don't have any eyes on the ground. A lot of the stuff that is put out is put out by the the Russian war bloggers who have that, you know, that mixed reputation we're very familiar with of occasionally being accurate and quick and reliable and definitely having an angle and definitely being selective in what they put out and definitely being closely curated, despite their apparent independence, pretty closely curated by elements of the Russian state, whether it's Wagner, whether it's, you know, the Ministry of Defense itself or... Or, or something else. And I think actually, so I'm talking about kind of the reporting of the news rather than the news, because I think Dom's covered it very well. I think, I think we've all got to be very, very wary of that, because the pressure on us is always to fill column inches and say, what is new? And the truth is, I think at the moment, we, we just don't know very much. You know, there, there, there was the video that, that Dom was talking about that came out of the, the destroyed leopards and the Bradley, of course, made it was it was dramatic it, it it kind of made big waves at the same time there was a the ukrainians managed to get out on one of their supposedly independent telegram channels a video of supposedly showing a bunch of russian infantry fleeing from ukrainian assault and 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 the kindest thing you can say about both of this this is this is selective stuff selectively released both sides want us to see this and the truth is we haven't we have very very little idea of what's really happening on the ground at, at any one moment that said at the moment right now I, i'm gently trying to tease out one idea that was presented from russian sources from russian accounts they said they've noticed that the that the ukrainians at least in this operation are definitely attacking more at night a number of russian bloggers have said this and one suggestion that they've put out is because it's um, something to do with superior night sites Others haven't said that. There is another Russian official who said he thought it was more to do with avoiding aviation and things like that. But there's definitely one of one one of the interesting things to discuss about this operation is how this operation is being shaped not only by the the equipment that NATO has donated to Ukraine, things like the Bradley and the Leopard and so on, but also all this training. And we've made a lot of kind of combined arms training. What should you be doing? Attacking at night is one thing that that, that NATO armies do a lot of, not just because they've got uh, night vision equipment. I'm gently, and with a lot of caveats, hammering something together about that today. And on my um, just last thing that's been kind of bugging me, and maybe I should save this as a final thought, but anyway, throughout the weekend, actually, I have been thinking a lot about the Battle of Normandy. And I know Francis liked to talk about, you know, the anniversary of that last week um, and the symbolism and so on, but I think... What a lot of people don't know about the Battle of Normandy is that after D-Day, there were a series of British and Canadian operations named after racecourses. There was Goodwood and Epsom and and I don't know much about racing. Anyway, you don't hear much about them because they were very, very bloody and not very successful and a bit embarrassing. And they took about seven weeks. But the ultimate kind of result of that seven weeks later, eight weeks later, was that the Americans were able to break out at the other end of the line because the Germans were so depleted. If we'd had Telegram at that time, I mean, my God, the stuff we'd be seeing in video feeds and uh, and things like that. And that really is to kind of echo Dom's point about, you know, that this is high-intensity warfare 
and images like that are to be expected. Thanks very much, Roland. Can I just pick up, Dom, very quickly, what Roland said about night vision goggles? You, you have some experience using them, Dom. What, what are the issues and challenges you found as a soldier? Issues and challenges I found as a soldier, I better limit that to night vision goggles who could be here for a much longer time. So basically, I mean, the idea that night vision goggles both on the person and on the vehicle suddenly means, ah, it's the same as daylight, I can cut about and do everything I would do, no problem. I mean, that, that's not correct. They give you a distinct advantage over people who do not have night vision equipment, but it is by no means the panacea, and in many cases can be a double-edged sword. Night vision goggles, generally you're looking through almost like small tubes, so you lose all your situational awareness, you lose your peripheral vision, although the modern goggles do sort of spread around the 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 head if you like to give you greater awareness but there's still huge areas that you don't that, that you don't pick up on um, that, as you do during daylight focus is an issue it's only only the most modern night vision goggles will will focus as you move your move the point of aim if you like so it can tell where you're trying to look and it will adjust the lens so you can either look close up and see who you're, who you're speaking to the buddies to your left and right or long distance and so on and so forth so focus is an issue you can you can adjust the focus but by by twiddling a twiddling the, the the lens as you would with a camera as you might with a camera which obviously is not ideal if you're in combat so night vision goggles in and of themselves for the individual can be um can be really really tricky and takes a huge amount of training the same as any of this stuff you, you've got to we've said many times about the difficulties of doing combined arms operations so not only mastering your tank or mastering how to be a an engineer or an air defender or what have you but then working alongside all the other parts of the uh, the military try doing that then at night through goggles it is another level of complexity so as i say it's not just a question of oh it's gone a bit dark bung my goggles on and everything's fine again there are very broadly two types of things to to think about here there's image intensifiers which grab as much ambient light from from stars and the moon and the sunset and all the rest of it and um and and, and intensify that and then fire that into your eyeballs so that's 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 good okay on a on a very very dark night with no moon they can be pretty useless but they're generally okay the problem there though is that as soon as you get any more light such as a vehicle burning or or something going up in going up in smoke that will also be grabbed that light will be grabbed and intensified and shot into your eyeballs and suddenly you can't see a thing so actually image intensifiers are quite old but they can be they can be sometimes unhelpful and then you have thermal images that, that picks up the thermal energy coming off people and vehicles and what have you, and, and, and you can see those. But of course, it picks up the thermal energy, it picks up the, the thermal energy from everything, from, from a concrete building that's been in the sun all day. That, that, show, that show up quite nicely, and the ground, and you have issues of what's called thermal crossover when the temperature, the ambient temperature sort of decreases and, and the temperature of, of the other bits and pieces, they can blur out. So if certain times of the day, even thermal images, old thermal images can, can be, again, more trouble than they're worth. So all these things are, are good, but take a lot of, a lot of time to work with and, and understand fully, understand the foibles and work out how to, how to do it's going back to working out how to do your job at night. And then, same as we said before with combined arms warfare, you've got to work alongside everyone else doing their job and working together. So it is not a simple question of, ooh, it's gone dark, flick a light on. It really is not as easy as that. And sometimes it's a lot easier just to un- understand what you're losing by using the Mark 1 eyeball at, at night time. But you get all the peripheral vision and you kind of understand it a bit more and you haven't got these 
big heavy things dangling off the front of your helmet to, to, to deal with as well. So yes, they can be very good, but but by no means a panacea. Thanks very much, Dom. Joe, can we come to you? You've been looking at the all the different layers of Russian fortifications, well, as much as we can know about them at this point, that lie ahead of the Ukrainian troops in this counteroffensive. Can you talk us through a little bit about what you saw and the dangers they pose? Yeah, hi, folks. So returning from my last trip to Ukraine, I was asked to look at sort of the challenges that uh, Ukraine's military face in attempting to basically claw back land and sort of breach these front lines that separate Kyiv's forces from the Russian enemy. Um, so while I was in Ukraine, sort of this big talk was about this big offensive. The push hadn't quite started as we're seeing it now, but sort of the counteroffensive was the main issue on the table that everyone wanted to get their teeth into. So naturally, sort of, I spent my time talking to soldiers as they prepare and and basically get ready for this 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 big moment that we're kind of seeing now. And one one of the things I, I would often ask people, and um, and I, I do think that we're all too guilty of this. The Ukrainian government are guilty of it. Western Ukraine's Western allies are sort of guilty of that they they often paint a picture that's probably a bit too rosy. And while Ukraine has been given sort of vast amounts of kit and has built up this sort of force, which is it, it should be capable of mounting a serious counteroffensive, it's by no means going to be easy. And I was I was speaking to a an intelligence officer who's a, a member of. Ukraine's national guards in the the Kharkiv area, and I was I, I was basically saying that to this to this one person, what are the main challenges you face? What are you nervous about? What's what are going to be the problems? And and this chap, sir, he basically was incredibly complimentary, and he said, "Look, Russia have this incredible free line system of defences," um, and he said he envied the Russians' abilities to place mines, to dig trenches, and to position a uh, vast array of sort of artillery across that line of defence, or lines of defence, sorry. Um, so I'll, I'll read his quote that I, I wrote in this piece, which is available on, online and uh, in last Sunday's, or last, last weekend's Sunday Telegraph. He said, they have unbelievable trenches and unbelievable fortifications. It will be hard to break their lines of defence. There are also minefields and they have good artillery, more than us, unfortunately. So th- yeah, this is what I started to, 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 to look into. And when you start building up a picture using sort of Maxar and Planet Labs satellite imagery that's quite extensive by now. You can you can really start to build a picture of how this free layer defence system works. And so these free layers of defence basically stretch across the whole six hundred miles of front line that separate both Ukraine and Russians forces, basically all the way from sort of the edge of Crimea all up into the Donbass. And basically any front line that Ukraine is going to have to breach if it wants to sort of claw back that territory as part of this counteroffensive. And so the basis of this sort of free line defence, the initial step is sort of minefields and these foxholes, which are littered with sort of advanced infantry, the first line of Russian defence. And, you, and you, you've seen, and Dom's spoken to that effect of the ability minefields can have. And even with the latest sort of equipment, Ukraine can get caught out in them if they don't manage to get themselves through or maybe overcommit or whatever. And then you have these, then you, you start building up layers. You have then have these kind of concrete dragon's teeth structures, which are essentially big triangular blocks of thick concrete that are used and dotted around quite steadily to basically create this wall to stop tanks and other armoured vehicles passing. You have this layer of then anti-tank ditches. So if 
say, a leopard or a challenger could blast its way through one of these dragon's teeth walls, then they would have to then get past these ditches. And the ditches are often vast. They're sort of like five or six metres wide by five or six metres deep at times. And then back of that, you then have these really well-constructed personnel trenches and concrete bunkers at the rear of the defence, which the main sort of defensive reserves are kept just in case the lines are broken. And then behind them, you have artillery positions, which basically give Russia the ability, fire control, I guess Don would call it in the military (laughs) parlance, over every line of defence. They basically have long-range cover over sort of six to 700 metres of defences. So if there is a breach, they can then get their artillery guns out, get the drones in the sky and sort of spot these where, where the breaches happen, then they can rain down deep fire on those positions. So essentially from front to back, the defences stretch about 20 miles in depth in some cases. And it really does give sort of an emphasis on how hard and tough this is going to be in certain areas for Ukraine. And as I was doing a, a sort of a sweep over what people were saying this morning about the Ukrainian offensives, and there's the, um, in one area that Ukraine, in, when it was going through Donetsk and it had got got to various villages and liberated them, apparently. Some of those some of those villages were still 10 kilometres away from what is going to be the main defensive line. So that only indicates that fighting is going to get tougher. And maybe, maybe that does suggest that we are only seeing sort of the early, this kind of recce by force that Don was talking about, these probing attacks, trying to find early weaknesses in the line. And actually they haven't, Ukraine hasn't actually poured a lot of its main resources into trying to breach the lines so far. So that's just to give you an element of how hard it's going to be. Um, but yeah, then then sort of looking at these defences, you can if yeah you have to go online because I can try and describe that these these huge personnel trenches and anti tank ditches stretch for for many, many, many miles across the front line. But British intelligence officials in one of the MOD's daily updates described the Russian efforts to fortify their positions as some of the most extensive systems of military defensive work seen anywhere in the world. So it's while the um, Ukrainians have every right to sort of be optimistic and they've got a lot of gear, they've been really preparing for this moment, they have incredible motivation to do to do their job they're they're still fighting a war of national survival and they want to they want to get this over and done with and return to their kind of everyday lives and not have to risk their lives for the sake of their family friends country etc they, they still face this sort of in, in real real battle and i'll stop there thank you very much joe can i come back to dom very quickly there's a couple of other updates we didn't speak about at the beginning of the podcast the war at sea and also the war behind enemy lines there's been some news coming out over the last few days dom can you talk us through it yeah i decided to do this bit separately so as not to not to just overload ourselves get away from those three axes but basically there's a lot of other things going on so yesterday there were near simultaneous explosions reported on railway lines in Crimea's Kirovsky district, that's the eastern part of Crimea that then heads over the Kirsch Bridge into Russia. Um, there was also a blast on a railway line at uh, Yakimivka. This is in the Zaporizhia region, about 10 k southwest of Melitopol on the way to Crimea. Now, these things, these, these two blasts, I mean, Russia has battalions of railway engineers to fix these things for, for exactly this purpose, but it will slow down even if only temporarily, will slow down the uh, the logistic movement there by Russia. Whether or not this was 
regular Ukrainian military or soft special ops forces or partisans. We do not know. There's been a lot of partisan activity around the Militopol in the last few months. But so we keep an eye on that. And then separately, so H. Sutton, who runs the Cover Shores website, we should all be following him on Twitter. Very good for maritime maritime stuff. He's saying he did a did a piece that the Russian the Russian government has said that the Black Sea Fleet Vishnya class intelligence ship, the Priyazovia, has uh, was attacked at the weekend with six maritime drones. These maritime drones that we've seen recently skimming along and uh, and having a various uh, various bits and pieces, including the port of Sevastopol itself. But an attack happened about 300 k's southeast of Sevastopol in the Black Sea. This was close to where the Russian intelligence ship, sorry, 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 research vessel, the Ivan Kurz, was attacked on May the 24th. There are images online on um, on H. Sutton's website. You'll see these these drones with something scrawled down the side, which we think we think translates to cat and raccoon, but we're not entirely sure. Now. H. Sutton is suggesting that this that the ship was there doing something around the Turkstream natural gas pipeline. It's it's known to have, that Russian intelligence ships do operate that far down into the Black Sea, well away from Ukrainian-controlled coasts, mostly to monitor NATO air assets. Now, Russia says that that this ship was there was quote defending t- the Turkstream gas pipeline, although this class of intelligence ship is not not best suited to protecting undersea infrastructure. But of course, the inference there is that Russia says that it needs to defend the pipeline, possibly from Ukrainian or NATO sabotage. Now, that might seem far-fetched, but it might be setting up for a false flag attack. And of course, in the context of the Nord Stream attacks, which, you know, it, it, it is of interest. Now, we still no idea, no firm idea really what, what happened to Nord Stream. There's, there's still no very credible answers not in the public domain anyway so that's why we were largely quiet about Nord Stream we're not just chasing each each headline there but clearly undersea infrastructure is still very much um, still very much a part of this war what else was there Justin Trudeau Canada's prime minister he was in Kiev over the weekend and promised a load more load more military support there on Friday night Kharkiv Poltava that's the region to the west of Kharkiv Oblast and the Odessa regions were hit with cruise missiles, Iskander ballistic missiles and Iranian, the Iranian Shahid 131-136 drones. Ukraine says it shot down two of the cruise missiles and 20 Shahids. Unfortunately, fragments of one of the destroyed drones or at least one hit an apartment building in Odessa. Three civilians were killed, 27 others, including a pregnant woman with two kids, were injured. So a lot more happening there. Don't try and we don't want to overload everybody, but you know we just need to keep marking these things and moving on because it's things are moving very quickly. Thank you very much, Dom. All right, let's go to our final thoughts then. Roland or Joe? Uh, Roland, why didn't you start? My final thought is perhaps not that useful, but it, it, it's to be extremely cautious and to, to 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 treat with great caution anything you read online especially around this offensive because as we know there is there is a propaganda war going on and you will notice it affects you you will notice yourself you know moods rise and fall depending on stuff that's that's coming out and and so on and so forth the truth is let 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 us struggle with explain to editors why we shouldn't be running a massive piece on the latest little scrap of something coming out on telegram right that's kind of our job <laughs> everybody else there's there's not much you can really gain from 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 refreshing telegram every every five seconds to be absolutely honest i'm afraid the thug of war is as thick as it has been since before the offensive 
So that is my perhaps not especially and en- like en- literally the opposite of enlightening final thought is that we there is no light. Thank you very much, Roland. Joe Barnes. Yeah, well, echo what Roland has has just said there because yeah, we, we 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 just don't know. We're not we're not on the front line. We can't put eyes and ears on the ground to actually tell the stories. We rely on sort of tertiary information. Um, but then I, I I don't know how much it was covered at the start as I struggle to connect, but. Um, just want to say that Vladimir Putin has sort of lost one of his big allies in Europe in uh, Silvio Berlusconi today, who has reported as uh, as have died, aged 86. Um, and Vladimir Putin's sort of message of condolences said, uh, for me, Silvio is a dear person, a true friend, and I've always sincerely admired his wisdom, his ability to make balanced, far-sighted decisions, even in the most difficult situations. Silvio Berlusconi's party helped prop up the coalition government, the right-wing coalition government that currently governs in Rome. And while George Maloney, the Prime Minister, is really trying to go on a, a pro-Ukrainian run after various sort of accusations were levelled against Italy, probably being too soft or or almost cozying up to the Kremlin over the years, this will only help her sort of strengthen that position now that she has sort of a very senior guy in Berlusconi out of her way. And yeah, that's what I'll, I'll say for that. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Roland. Dom Nichols, would you like the very final words? Thanks. I'd just like to draw people's attention to an article that um, retired US General Ben Hodges has written. We had him on the pod a couple of weeks. In fact, last week, week four. Well worth uh, listening back if you're able to. But he's been writing in the Centre for European Policy Analysis, CEPA. You'll find it online. And he said that the, the real attack in Ukrainian's counteroffensive is still some way off. He points out that a Ukrainian tank battalion normally has 31 tanks. And he says an armoured infantry battalion, so armoured infantry is a mix of tanks and infantry fighting vehicles such as US Bradley, German Marder, that kind of stuff. So an armoured infantry battalion would have about the same number. And in these groupings, tank and armoured infantry battalions, you're going to have armoured vehicles carrying engineers, air defenders, logisticians and so on as, they, as they've got to keep pace with the tanks. Literally keep pace in terms of speed so you all get to the target get to the objective at the same time but also keep pace in terms of survivability there's no point trying to have an air defender putting this umbrella of protection over the force which then gets knocked out because the force then moves on and moves outside the the scope of that umbrella so armored infantry brigades and tank brigades have a lot more armored vehicles in them for all the other all the other people on the battlefield now an armoured infantry, sorry, an armoured brigade is likely to have three tank battalions and one or two mechanised infantry battalions, this Ben Hodges is saying. So in total, an armoured brigade is going to have about 250 armoured vehicles of different types. I cast your mind back to how many images we've seen over the over the weekend of, of knocked out leopards and bradleys and what have you. And uh, is this the main attack type thing? He's suggesting not. So Ben Hodges says, when we see two or three of those brigades, so around 500 to 750 armoured vehicles, focused on a narrow front, it will then be possible to say that the main attack has probably started and where it's happening. Ben says, but even then, be careful. The Ukrainian general staff will want to keep the Russians guessing about the location of the main attack for as long as possible, and they won't be too bothered and will probably welcome Twitter getting it wrong, unquote. Hmm. So I suggest you don't... 
I'm sorry, Rowan. Just trying to keep awake over there. Don't doom scroll through social media as I as I did for much of the weekend. Don't try and grab at the what has happened because that's like trying to grab smoke. It'll go straight you know, right through your fingers. Instead, we should familiar ourselves with the way that different elements of a military force is employed so that we are then better able to make sense of the, the few snapshots that we do see, these snapshots that will include Russian disinformation and will include the over-exuberance of pro-Ukrainian channels. So learn how military force is, is employed, and then you can make sense of what, what we are seeing, I'm, I'm suggesting. But I do, I do echo Roland's comments. Don't, don't try and grab at every single piece of information you see, because we'll all go mad. So that's my, my final thought. But David, you're, um, you're packing your bags. That is true. Yeah, I'm off on a little trip. Over the next 10 days, I'll be traveling with some volunteers across Europe and into into Ukraine. I'll try and call in on the lives here and just give you some updates of what we're seeing and who we're talking to. But that might be a bit tricky. We'll have to sort of go day by day, I think. But yeah, bags are, bags are packed, and I've got to I've got to, got to leave London in a, in a well, actually, in about half an hour. So, yes, looking forward to, looking forward to getting getting back to Ukraine. It was it was a huge privilege to report from there with you, Dom, last summer, and it'd be very yeah, it should be a very interesting trip. I think um, I might have, I'll have to be very careful. I think about you know telling you too much about wh- where I am and all that kind of thing, but uh, hopefully be finding some interesting people and seeing some interesting things on, on the way. So yeah, I'll be back in, uh, I think Dom, Dom, Dom and Francis, you'll be holding, holding the fort while, while I'm gone. So I'll be one of your contributors rather than throwing to different people while hosting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that as well. Mega. Well, we'll try not to burn the place down in your absence. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.com. .co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.